0: If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me to the book of Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Some of you were not able to be here last week, and so you 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 won't be behind. If you listen to the recording on the website for last week, you'll notice that my microphone kept going in and out, so I hope that we can kind of in the recap this morning capture that I don't think the bulk of anything is missing on there but still yet we was having some technical difficulties so we're going to pick up in Paul's argument uh, in chapter 5 beginning in verse 1 we'll read down to verse 6 for freedom Christ has set us free stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning for your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word. We thank you this morning that we have it here Most of us have a copy in front of us. Help us not to take that for granted this morning. Help us to be active in our participation in the sermon today. That we would think carefully about every word of this text and rethink it. And Lord, in the process of thinking about these words that you have inspired. These words that you have preserved through the centuries. God, in the process of thinking them through. And unpacking them together. We pray that you would do a work in our hearts. We pray, O God. That you would fill us with joy in believing. That you would fill us, O God. With your Holy Spirit. To have eyes to see and ears to hear. And hearts to receive, embrace and apply biblical truth. For some, Lord, it might be. That today they would be saved. As you call them through the gospel to yourself. We pray for that. We pray you would give them strength and courage. And repentance and faith. God we pray this morning. That your church would be strengthened. Edified. Built up. We pray today oh God. That we might be livers and proclaimers. Of the gospel. Of your grace. In Christ Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Well Paul in writing to the churches. In the region of Galatia. Has been warning them. Repeatedly. About the dangers. Of legalistic Judaism. These Judaizers were teaching. A false doctrine of works. They were teaching. That a person can only be. Righteous in the sight of God. If they. Obey the law that God gave to Israel through Moses. You know it by the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And all of the ceremonial law that accompanied those Ten Commandments. All of the festival days, the feast days and the festivals. All of the dietary laws. They were saying that you must obey the law. You have to perform The works of the law in order to, listen, attain righteousness. And if you, through the works of the law, attain that righteousness and maintain that righteousness in the sight of God, then you can have confidence that you are accepted and justified, saved and accepted in the sight of God. And Paul has taken chapter 1 chapters 1 and 2, to defend his apostolic authority to speak on behalf of God and to tell them more clearly again that that is not true but rather salvation, justification and the attainment of righteousness is by grace through faith in Christ alone plus nothing. He does that In chapters 3 and 4 very pointedly as he defends the historic doctrine of justification by faith alone. He points to numerous Old Testament texts. And then he turns a corner in chapter 5 and he begins a more practical section of how this kind of life Is lived. How do free people in Christ. Live the Christian life. That's the question. That we need to grapple with. This morning. How do you live the Christian life. In a way that's pleasing to God. In a way that's fruitful. In a way that is. Joyful. For you. Well. Just a little bit of a recap. We have four points. That we want to make four observations from these six verses to help us to think through this text together. Number one, number one is a clear statement in verse one, namely that Christ set us free to be free. With an emphasis, first of all, we thought about Christ set us free, not us, not our self effort, not our works, not our performance, not our willpower, But Christ set us free, he says. For freedom, Christ has set us free. He was saying that over in chapter 3 in verse 1, in the second part of verse 1 of chapter 3, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He was crucified on our behalf. So that he could purchase us. So that he could redeem us. Chapter 3 and verse 13 says. That Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. By becoming a curse for us. For it is written cursed is everyone who was hanged on a tree. So it is Christ who sets the sinner free. It's not us. And he says that. Let the emphasis fall in chapter 5 verse 1 on the reality of why he set us free. For freedom, Christ set us free. In other words, Christ set us free to be free. And how terrible a tragedy it will be if you who have been set free go and put yourself under the burden and the bondage of slavery to legalism. That's essentially what he's saying. And you remember the illustration that I gave you of a person that's in a dungeon, in a jail cell, chained to the wall, and somebody comes in and they unlock the door. They walk over and they unlock the chains, set you free, and you walk out of that cell, go across the hall and open the next cell door. And lock yourself back in and chain yourself to the wall. Paul says you've been set free to be free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so that was the first point. Christ set us free to be free. Secondly, we looked at three terrible effects of Legalistic Judaism. There are three mentioned in this text. Number one is that Christ will be of no advantage to you. In verse two. The first negative effect is that Christ, verse two, will be of no advantage to you. He uses this kind of uh, hypothetical situation. If you accept, verse two, circumcision, circumcision. The implied, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. So it's conditional. If you are seeking circumcision and adherence to the law as a means of justification. You've got to hear that point. It's not that you don't want to do the the law of God, the moral law of God, that Jesus summarized for us. Love God supremely and love your neighbor as yourself. It's not that you are not going to do that as a Christian. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you're free to be free to love God supremely and love your neighbor as yourself. You're actually set free from the bondage of the slavery to the nature of sin that you have. Wherein you were incapable of doing right in the sight of God and pleasing God. But if you notice he says, and let's just jump down for the sake of clarity in verse 4. In the second part of verse 4, he says, you are severed from Christ. You who would be what? Justified by the law. So when he says circumcision, when he talks about the law, he's not talking about someone who is Obeying God out of love, he's talking about someone who is seeking to gain a status of achieved righteousness in the sight of God. And therefore be justified in the sight of God, accepted in the sight of God, on the basis of what you do in obedience to the law. If you do that, Christ is of no advantage to you. That's what he says. Romans chapter 11 verse 6, I remind you of it. But if it is by grace, listen, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. It can't be any clearer than that. If you try to add works your performance your self-effort what you can do if you try to add that to the grace of God in Christ grace is destroyed and you no longer have grace but it is earned by you the doer well there's a problem with that isn't there Because the standard, and that's the second problem that he points out for us in verse 3, the standard is that you are obligated to keep the entire law. He says back over there in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10 for all who, read that word, for all who what? Chapter 3 verse 10 for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Now, why is that? Again, if you're relying, trusting, depending upon your works of the law, you run into the curse. And then he gives the reason why. He says, for it is written. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by what? All things written in the book of the law and to do them. And so he says... Over here in chapter 5, a similar statement. He says in verse 3, I testify, I protest to you, to every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So number one, the work of Christ is of no effect, because you can't mix the work of Christ and your personal performance together as a means of righteousness. As a means of attaining righteousness. As a means of being justified. And you know that means that you are accepted. You are saved. But secondly, you are obligated to keep the entire law. And if you falter in one point, you are guilty. And therefore, you are a transgressor. And therefore, you are accountable to God as a transgressor. And therefore, listen, on the basis of your works, if you commit one offense... Then you are guilty and accountable, and therefore you can never, from that moment on, be justified in and of yourself. Because to be justified, you would have to be not guilty. <laughs> So the Bible teaches us in Romans uh, that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Over and over and over and over and over from Genesis to Revelation. The picture is perfectly clear that we are sinners by nature and by choice. And therefore we are under the just wrath of God. But God has acted in amazing grace and merited unearned favor. In sending His only begotten Son into the world on behalf of sinners. So that we who are guilty in the sight of God, can be forgiven and accepted, not on the basis of our performance, but on the basis of the work of Christ. And so we're saved all of grace. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Number three, the third negative, terrible effect of legalistic Judaism is in verse four. And I summarize it with this statement You are severed, cut off, from the grace of God in Christ. Verse four. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. And here Paul is saying essentially the same thing. He's of no advantage to you in verse 2. You are severed from Christ, verse 4. You are fallen away from grace, verse 4. But if you think about what we talked about from Romans eleven six. That if you have grace and in comes the smallest amount of works, then grace ceases to be grace. You can understand the way that Paul uses the phrase fallen away from grace. He's not saying, he's not talking here about you being saved and then doing some kind of a sin and then you are fallen away from grace and now you lost your salvation. That's not what he's talking about. What Paul is doing repeatedly in this text is holding up two principles. Are you with me? Two principles. One is law and personal performance and self-effort. And the other one is promise and grace and faith. And he says, if you hold to this one, if you rely upon this one, then it cancels this one out. They are mutually exclusive. You cannot have both. So he says, you are severed from the grace of God in Christ. If you are seeking to rely upon and trying to be justified by law keeping, you are therefore separated from the principle of grace. That make sense? If you seek performance, you can do that. I'm going to seek to be accepted on the basis of my performance of the law or any other kind of list of rules and list of do's and don'ts. Or you're going to seek to be righteous and accepted in God's sight on the basis of Christ. But it can't be both. So you are you are fallen from grace if you seek justification through law keeping. That's all he's saying. Now that's how far we got last week. However, we said that you, uh, we ended by thinking about three ways that you could hear this admonition, this text, this letter. The first way is an unregenerate church member that Paul hopes will get saved. So sometimes, beloved, people get called up in a movement People get caught up in the flow of what's happening. People are believing on this Jesus of Nazareth. People are gathering in great numbers into local churches. And it seems to be sweeping the known world at the time. And it could be just like I believe there are thousands today in local churches that got caught up in the moment and the movement and, and, and the influence of it all. And so they did the external thing that everybody else was doing. And so they're an unregenerate, not born again person that is in the midst of this congregation. And they're really legalist and they probably don't recognize it. And Paul is writing so clearly, so pointedly, hoping and praying that they will hear the truth of the gospel, of the grace of God and the work of Christ, and they will be saved and born again. The second way that you can hear it is a person that is born again, a person that is indwelt by the Spirit, regenerate, but in the development of spiritual maturity... Maybe still on the spiritual infancy side or maybe spiritual childhood. And so these false teachers have entered in and among these churches have muddied up the theological waters of the spiritual child of God. Yes. But now they're getting caught up. I, I thought it was by grace. I believed on Jesus. And now they're saying it's works. And I guess I'll try to do some of these works. And Paul is writing to them so that the, the, the theological waters of the clear gospel of Christ will be clear and pure in their minds and their hearts so that they will experience joy and freedom in Christ. That's the second way. And the third way is the worst way. And I hope no one in this room does. Listen this way, and that is an unregenerate person who understands the claims of the gospel of grace and rejects it. I understand, Paul, that you're saying that a person is saved apart from their own personal performance, that we are sinners and then left to ourselves. We are under the curse and we are guilty before God and therefore under the wrath of God. And that it is only through Jesus Christ and His and Him crucified and raised for the dead that I can be saved and accepted in the sight of God. And I don't believe it. And a lot of people are in that boat today. They don't believe it. A dear friend of my family told my dad one time when he was preaching on grace, and they were talking after the service was over, and he said, "Brother, he said I just believe." That we've got to do something. I just believe. That we've got to do something. Now friend listen. I'm not saying this. But God is saying. If you rely. Verse 4. On the works. Of the law. If you seek justification by I've just got to do something. You are severed from the grace of God that is in Christ. Now, this is point number three. Number one, Christ saved us to be free. For freedom, Christ set us free. Number two, three negative effects, terrible effects of Judaism of Legalistic Judaism. Number three, main point number three, is a positive alternative to the Christian life. And this is where it gets good. And I hope you'll give me some space here. In verse five, Paul turns the corner to say, if this is the negative stuff and the terrible effects of legalism, what what does that leave us? If 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 we're not gaining righteousness in the sight of God by our good works, then where does our good works come from? If we're not gaining justification by our obedience to the law, then how do I live the Christian life? You ever ask, ask that question? Verse 5, he begins to answer it. You could really say that all of chapter 5... Uh, The the rest of chapter five and really chapter six as well is the implications of the answer to that question of of answering that question. And here's here's my sentence. So the, the, the point that I wanted you to write down is a positive alternative to the Christian life. Other than legalistic Judaism or any other kind of legalism. Now, here's the alternative. Give it to you in a sentence. Spirit enabled life of faith, looking to the future fullness of righteousness. (laughs) And we'll unpack that. The positive alternative to legalism is a spirit enabled life of faith. You can get that part. You probably, you can write that one down. The positive alternative to legalism in living the Christian life is a spirit-enabled life of faith. And that life of faith is looking to the future fullness of righteousness to come. Verse 5, let's look at it. He says, For through the Spirit, by faith... We ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now listen. Are you going to be righteous? Or are you righteous? Take a, take a minute to think about that. Are you going to be righteous? Or are you righteous now? If you are in Christ. Christ. Answer, yes. You presently, currently, if you are a child of God and you are in Christ, you are righteous. The work is finished and complete and in the sight of God, beloved, you are righteous. It's just not It's just that you're not righteous in and of your own self. You have a righteousness given to you from outside of you. Namely the righteousness of Christ. So. Even though in Christ the work of redemption is complete. And we are presently righteous in the sight of God. He is our righteousness. Jesus is. Yet. There is another reality that is still ahead. What is that reality? He says that we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And that could either be the hope that is righteousness or the hope of the righteousness that you have in Christ, which is what I think it is. The hope of the righteousness that you have been given, imputed into you on your life, stamped upon your account because of Christ and His work and His perfect life. The hope that we have because we are righteous in Christ is a glorious future hope. It is sure and steadfast. Let me say it another way. There remains another aspect Concerning righteousness that we eagerly wait for, namely the fullness of the experience of a resurrected, glorified body and eternal life of sinlessness. Now if that doesn't make you happy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have anything else to tell you. If you can't understand. That you, apart from any work that you've done or will do, have received a free gift of grace, which is an alien righteousness from outside of you that Jesus had and possesses, who, get, who gives it to you. And on the basis of that imputed righteousness, you and I are eagerly waiting for the fullness of that experience in a resurrected body And an eternity of sinlessness. You'll never sin again. You will never sin again when Jesus returns. And that's what he's talking about. In Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. And following. 18 to 23. If you just want to jot it down. Romans eight eighteen to 23. Listen to what Paul writes. I love this. For, for consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Something is coming. We are Christ's. We are righteous, we are holy, we are saints, we are sanctified, we are justified and forgiven right now if you're in Christ. But there's something coming and that's glorification and it is wonderful. And Paul says it's the present sufferings of this life are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For, listen to this, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of god the world the creation of god is waiting on a future moment of the revealing of the unveiling of the glory of the children of god verse 20 for the creation Was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. It was through Adam's sin that the earth was cursed. And thorns and thistles began to grow. And the the earth was hard so that you can't hardly get anything to grow on it. And beloved, that's going to be, the earth is going to be liberated from that. Where was that? Verse 20. Yeah, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. You ever thought about that when you when you think about an earthquake? The world is groaning as if in labor, waiting for what? Verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who are in Christ, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we, here it is again, wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's coming beloved it's coming you'll never sit again Philippians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21 Philippians 3:20 20. but our citizenship citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the lord jesus christ verse 21 Philippians three twenty one, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so when Paul says in Galatians 5, 5, that it is through the spirit that we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, that's what he's talking about. And so it's through the Spirit, Spirit enabled, life of faith, by faith, as we trust in God, as we depend upon God, as we believe God, take Him at His Word, believing the promises that He made, He will keep. That's how we live the Christian life. Enabled by the Spirit, we believe in God. We trust in God. We depend upon God. We wait. And it's interesting there that we eagerly wait for this future fullness. What is the picture there? Waiting. Eager, joyful anticipation. But in that picture, there's no toiling. There's no laboring. There's no fretting that it may not come. But it is an eager, joyful, confident, trust, and waiting that we have received the gift of righteousness in Christ by faith. And that what God has promised, He will do. Number four, this is the final one. In verse six, what matters is faith working through love. So... The the positive alternative to legalism is a spirit-enabled life of faith as we look forward to that future fullness of righteousness that's coming. Now, in the meantime, living in this world, Paul says, what matters is not circumcision or uncircumcision, but faith working through love. Look at it in verse 6. For in Christ Jesus... Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. The external sign of circumcision or the lack thereof doesn't make any difference at all. See what he's saying? There's no boasting in circumcision in the sight of God. And listen, there's no boasting in uncircumcision. So it's not that they are boasting in anything external to themselves. That's not what's important, he says. Neither of them makes a difference in whether or not is a person is justified in the sight of God. It's only that faith works through love. Now, how do we get there? How do we get there? How He's talking about justification. It's not the external sign of circumcision that gives confidence that you're justified. Nor is it the fact that you're you're not circumcised. That doesn't make any difference either. But faith working through love. Because, my friends, it's not about the external realities. Listen, it's about the condition of the heart. That's what it's about. It's not about the external realities. It's about the condition of the hearts. It's about a life that has been affected by the power of the Holy Spirit. That shows the evidence of that work through acts of love. Justification. We have confidence that we are justified in the sight of God. Not because of any external reality. But because of an internal reality. Of the work of the Spirit of God. Now listen. What does that have to do with works of love? Faith that works through love. Because the way that inward reality. Expresses itself. Is. By faith. In acts of love. The acts of love. Do not. Produce the justification. The justification. Produces the acts of love. It's the internal condition of the heart. That has been affected by the spirit. That gives rise. To a life of faith. That expresses itself. In acts of love. It is living out what God has worked in. By the power of the Holy Spirit as we trust in God. Living out what God has worked in. By the power of the Holy Spirit as we trust in God. As we look to God on the basis of the work of Christ, we live a life of love. A life of love for God supremely. A life of love for others so that they too can know this God of grace. And thereby glorify and make much of Him. Faith that justifies or the faith that counts, Paul says... Is described as a faith that expresses itself in actions of love. So the historical kind of quote that you hear so often is indeed that we are justified by faith alone. But faith that justifies is never alone. Because it is an active faith. It is a faith That expresses itself and is shown to be true and saving and real by actions of love to God and to others. Douglas Moo, the uh, commentator, writes about this. He says, quote, It is by appropriating and living out of the power of the Spirit... That believers confidently wait for the ultimate confirmation of their righteous status before God. We are righteous in the sight of God. That is a fixed position that we have in Christ. And yet we eagerly wait by the power of the Holy Spirit. To have that confirmation fully realized when Christ returns. So when we are gripped by the glorious gospel of the grace of God, there is a radical change that happens on the inside. The difference between a legalist that's in the church, going to the same church services, reading along in the same scriptures, bowing their head at the same prayers, giving in the as the offering plate goes by. And the person that is born again and justified in the sight of God is the difference of life and death and night and day. One of them is seeking through the energy of the flesh to go through the external appearances of godliness. And the other one, beloved, has had a radical change in their heart. And it makes all the difference in the world. The alternative is to be controlled by outside forces like lists of rules of do's and don'ts and forms of religious ritualism. All with the focus on what we do. But the alternative. Is a spirit enabled life of faith. That manifests itself in acts of love. Toward God supremely. And toward others as ourselves. Now. I want to close with a couple quotes. Because this is absolutely. Absolutely important. That you understand. And I'm going to quote from a rather uh, um, strange, in a way, for me, source. I'm going to give you a couple quotes from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis was a literary professor. He was not a theologian. And my disclaimer is, he is not to be looked to for a careful, exegetical, biblical understanding of Christian doctrine. (laughs) However I do believe he was a Christian and uh, these two quotes I think get at this issue of how to live the Christian life either you're focused on I got to do I got to do I got to do or your focus is on faith in God and the work that he has done to change the heart so that You want to do what's godly and righteous and holy. And the difference is eternal life or eternal death. Listen listen to what he says. He's talking about what it means to walk by the Spirit. Quote, a perfect man would never act from a sense of duty. A perfect man would never act from a sense of duty. He would always want to do the right thing more than the wrong one. Duty is only a substitute for love, love for God, love for other people, like a crutch, which is a substitute for a leg. Most of us need the crutch at times, especially when you're not born again. But of course, he says, it is idiotic to use the crutch when our own legs can do the journey on their own. A perfect man would never act out of a sense of duty. He would always want to do the right thing. That's what we're talking about. A change of heart that then gives rise to new affections, new desires, new loves, new passions, new pursuits of godliness and righteousness. And justice and love. It comes from the work of the heart. And the second one, the second one, he's writing about the Puritans. And and most of the time, people think about the Puritans as being these kind of, you know, smug, gloomy, uh, strict people that nobody would want to be around. Well, in actuality, it could be more the opposite. See, beloved, we learn from church history. One of the reasons that we keep in in our modern day repeating some of the things of our past is because we have lost the grip of understanding church history. But in the Protestant Reformation, which, by the way, 500 years to, to this year, 500 years ago, the Protestant Reformation and the work of the Puritans, Lewis is going to write about it, Talking about this subject and this idea that really the Protestant Reformation was the recovery of this inward reality of a transformed heart. That gives rise to a life of faith and actions of love over against Roman Catholicism which is nothing but external ritualism and legalism. So this is what he says. In reality and he's writing about. William Tyndale in particular. In reality, Tyndale is trying to express an obstinate fact which meets us long before we venture into the realm of theology. The fact that morality or duty, which he calls the law, never yet made a man happy in himself or dear to others. Why? It is shocking. It is shocking. But it is undeniable. We do not wish either to be or to live among people who are clean or honest or kind as a matter of duty. If somebody is doing an act of kindness and you say, I thank you for that. And you say, oh, well, I just had to. It changes it, doesn't it? Oh, don't worry about it. That's what I had to do. I'll read it again. We do not wish to be or to live among people who are clean or honest or kind as a matter of duty. We want to be and associate with people who like being clean and honest and kind. The mere suspicion that what seemed an act of spontaneous friendliness or generosity was really done as a duty subtly poisons it. In theological language... No man can be saved by works. The whole purpose of the gospel for Tyndale and for the others is to deliver us from morality. Thus, paradoxically, the Puritan of modern imagination, the cold, gloomy heart, doing as duty what happier and richer souls do without thinking of it, is precisely the enemy which historical Protestantism arose and smoked that's good stuff what what has happened historically is when the truth of the gospel is realized it's not religious ritualism of the church nor is it just simply a mental consent, consent to certain theological truths that are contained in the bible but it is an encounter with the god of grace through the power of the spirit Under the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That transforms the heart. That gives rise to a life of faith. That expresses itself in acts of love. Love for God. And love for others. Because we want to. (laughs) Because we want to. Oh, I hope you see the difference. Between that And legalistic Judaism or any other kind of legalism. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this day in your word and with your people. Our prayer now is that you would take and seal seal it to our hearts. God, I pray that you will call people out of the darkness and bondage and slavery to legalism. And free them to walk in the joy of the Lord. Let your church live in that freedom. By the power of your Holy Spirit. Through faith. Oh God we pray in Jesus name. Amen.